0: This is The Churches the World, Chapter 2, Episode 8, The Biblical Flood Story. Last week, I gave a high-level historical overview of the area on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. This week, I'm diving into the Biblical Flood Story. After the creation story, the next stop in Genesis is the Flood. Well, there are Cain and Abel, and a mention of a few geographic names and some mysterious people. But I will not be covering the land of Nod, the area where Cain was essentially exiled, and mentioned in Genesis chapter 4, verse 16. There is no reliable source as to where Nod is, other than east of Eden. I will also not cover Enoch, also from Genesis 4, since its location is also unknown. Then there are the Nephilim of Genesis chapter 6, and again mentioned in Numbers 13 whose existence and qualities are of much debate. They, too, will not be covered. And now for the flood story. Instead of recounting it verbatim, I'll just give a general outline. I think you know where to find it if you want to read the whole thing. But just in case you don't, it's in Genesis chapters 6 through 9. The story describes God's intent to return the earth to a state of watery chaos by flooding the entire planet... He has decided to do this because of humanity's misdeeds. After the Flood, he then remakes the world. As such, the Flood was no ordinary overflow, but a reversal of much of creation. The narrative discusses the evil of mankind that moved God to destroy the world, the preparation of the Ark for certain animals, and of course, Noah and his family. The story ends with God's guarantee, sometimes called the Noahic Covenant, this covenant was for the continued existence of life under the promise that God would never send another such flood. But there are a few things that most get wrong about the flood story. First, there were not two of every animal, but a pair of each of the unclean animals. There were seven pair of the clean animals, and I'm assuming the word clean meant livestock. So sheep, goats, cows, and probably dogs and cats. The fact that there were more than two of the clean helps to explain why when some were sacrificed immediately after the flood, doing so did not lead to their extinction. Next, they were not on the ark for 40 days and 40 nights. According to the narrative, they were on board for 364 days, so one day short of most years. This total assumes a lunar calendar with months of 29 and one-half days. The year assumption uses the timeline found in chapter 7, verse 7, through chapter 8, verse 16. Finally, while most do not get the measurements of the arc wrong, they have no clue how large a cubit is. A cubit is about one and a half feet, or just under half a meter. So the dimensions of the arc were 450 feet, or 137 meters long, and 75 feet, or just under 23 meters wide, or in nautical terms, the width is the beam. It was just under 45 feet, or 14 meters tall, to the rail, with a superstructure of an unspecified height. There were instructions to leave an opening below the roof of one and a half feet, or half a meter, and I assume this was for ventilation and light. The length is very close to that of the U.S. Navy's Oliver Hazard Perry frigate, but the arc was 30 feet wider. Overall, this was a wide ship for its length, especially by today's standards. But this width imparted stability, and had it been powered, the width would have sacrificed speed. But I assumed there were no sails, so speed was not a factor. The major issue Noah would have faced as a naval architect, in my layman's opinion, would be the strength of the frame, especially the keel of such a large craft. The instruction to use cypress was spot on, as it's light, strong, and rock resistant. In fact, many modern wood boat builders still choose the same wood. But the use of the word cypress is misleading. The Hebrew text does not say cypress which is why the King James reads gopher wood. No one really knows what was meant by this phrase. There are many theories, but one sticks out. There is a physical similarity between the Hebrew letters G and K, and that suggests that the word may actually have been kopher, spelled K-O-P-H-E-R, when translated. This Hebrew word means pitch, essentially waterproofing tar. Therefore, kopher wood would be pitched wood. The phrase, though, still leaves the species of wood undetermined, but it does make more sense. Of course, gopher wood could also have been a now-extinct type of tree. Cypress is used in the more modern English translations, such as the New International and New Revised Standard versions. So I'll run with this for a bit, to hopefully explain why the translators may have assumed it was wood of this type. There are several species of cypress, but the one that was most likely to have been used by Noah was probably Mediterranean Cypress, native to the biblical region. This evergreen tree grows up to 115 feet, just over 30 meters tall, and is very flexible, bending in even the slightest breeze. As a note, the doors of St. Peter's Basilica are made of this wood. Also, it has an unbelievable lifespan, with one specimen in Iran estimated to be about 4,000 years old. One more potential misunderstanding, and that is where the ark did finally make landfall. According to Genesis chapter 8, verse 4, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, with the word mountains being plural. Some assume that this is specifically Mount Ararat, while others believe it just indicates that it was in the general vicinity. It's not surprising that this would be one of the first points that would emerge from a biblical flood, as it's the highest mountain for some distance. I'll cover the mountain itself in more detail next week. The Masoretic text of the Pentateuch places the flood about 1,656 years after creation. A few biblical scholars have attempted to give it a specific time in history. Their dates vary depending on the researcher, but range anywhere from 2,348 to 3,982 B.C. These dates were generally determined through the genealogical narratives of both the Old and New Testaments, combined with the lifespans of the patriarchs of Genesis. If these dates are correct, that 4,000-year-old cypress in Iran sprouted not long after the flood. Of course, no one has ever explained how long Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden before they committed the original sin. We just don't know. While many within the Christian faith consider the story to be allegorical, there are some fundamentalists who believe the story to be literally true, Scientists, among others, believe that the story cannot be literally true, and among scholars it is categorized, along with other flood stories, as a legend. They postulate that a worldwide deluge of rain and the unleashing of springs, such as described in Genesis, to be incompatible with the modern understanding of natural history, especially geology and paleontology. The Genesis flood narrative is considered to be one of a number of similar flood traditions, Many scholars believe that the biblical flood story originated from Mesopotamian versions, primarily because they feel that the date of the Mesopotamian stories are earlier than the biblical one. The earliest written flood story is thought to be the Sumerian myth found in what is called the Epic of Zuasutra. Earlier and very similar Mesopotamian flood stories are found in the Epic of Gilgamesh, as well as others. Diving deeper, in the Mesopotamian Gilgamesh story... The Flood is mentioned in passing as part of the tale itself, and appears to have been the result of polytheistic impulse, not the Supreme Deity's moral judgment. However, in a version of the Babylonian Flood story, it is made clear that the Flood was sent by the gods to reduce human overpopulation, and after the Flood, other measures were introduced to prevent the problem from recurring. I'm going to step up on my soapbox for a bit. In my mind, the fact that a similar story can be found from multiple sources does not indicate that the story itself is false, but instead lends credibility to the story. Some scholars call this multiple attestation. That's just an elaborate way of saying the same thing. Other scholars throw the word independent in front of attestation to form the phrase multiple independent attestation. I'll get to independent flood stories next week, but as a somewhat modern equivalent, think of Hurricane Katrina. If there were only one story of it occurring then we might doubt it. But when it comes from many sources, some of which are independent, then we begin to believe it. And we continue to believe that it did happen, even when the stories are all different in some or many aspects. Even if you never saw the television footage and only read about it, there would be little doubt that it did occur. Now for the other bit. As a Christian, I believe the flood story as it was presented in the Bible. But what about the other, somewhat similar stories, some of which will be explored next week? In my mind, it's possible that these were based on the same events, but as they passed through the generations, probably by oral tradition, the stories changed to be as we hear them today, stepping down from a soapbox. One such flood story is from Islam. It should come as little surprise that this story bears a stark resemblance to the Hebrew text, given how the religions are related. The Quran states that Noah was inspired by God, believed in the oneness of God, and preached Islam. I'm a bit unclear how he preached Islam before Muhammad, but this isn't a podcast about Islam, and I'm by no means an expert on the subject. Allah sent Noah to warn the people to serve none but Allah, but most of them would not listen. They challenged Noah to make good on his threats and mocked him when, under Allah's command, he built a ship. Allah told Noah not to speak to him on behalf of the wrongdoers, as their fate was to drown. In time, water gushed from underground and fell from the sky. Noah loaded onto his ship pairs of animals of all kinds, his household, and a few of those who believed. One of Noah's own sons did not believe and told his father he would seek safety in the mountains. By doing so, he was among the drowned. The ship sailed amid great waves... Allah commanded the earth to swallow the water and the sky to clear, and the ship came to rest on Al-Judy. Noah complained to Allah for taking his son, and Allah reminded him that the son was an evildoer and not of Noah's household, and Noah prayed for forgiveness. Allah then told Noah to go, blessing him and the nations that will arise from those with him. As a note, Al-Judy is sometimes called Mount Judy, and is near the headwaters of the Tigris River, near the modern Syrian-Turkish border. I'll touch on it next week when I cover Mount Ararat. And for the animals, with the growth in zoological knowledge in the 17th century, it became necessary to recognize the increased awareness of the global distribution of species, with the canonical belief that all life had resprung from a single point on the slopes of Mount Ararat. The obvious answer was that man had spread over the continents following the destruction of the Tower of Babel, which I will be covering shortly, and had taken animals with him, yet some of the results of that seem peculiar. In 1646, Sir Thomas Brown wondered why the natives of North America had taken rattlesnakes with them, but not horses. Part of the answer to that question seems easier than the other. Maybe the horse had yet to be domesticated, and therefore man of the era did not see their value. As for the rattlesnake, that's a great question. Right up there with why did Noah take a pair on the ark? Of course, that was because God told him to. Maybe a first demonstration of grace. Or maybe they slithered on, unnoticed, as the first stowaways. And the snake could have crawled to North America. But the current theory of a land bridge between the Arctic wouldn't be terribly hospitable to a cold-blooded snake either. That serpent has been presenting a problem since day one, or maybe around day five. I'm not going to attempt to explain how all the species of the earth were able to get on that ship, other than to say I've come to accept that there are many things I am incapable of understanding. Some scholars pass the flood off as nothing more than a small localized event. Excavations in Iraq have revealed evidence of localized flooding at what is now the city of Tel Farah, Iraq, and various other Sumerian cities. A layer of riverine sediment, which radiocarbon dated to about 2900 B.C., interrupts the continuity of the soil deposits. These sediments extend as far north as the city of Kish, which you should be very familiar with by now. Pottery from the jadat Nasser period, and therefore dating to around 3000 B.C., was discovered immediately below the sediments, thought to indicate that a flood covered them in soil deposits. Other sites, such as Ur, Uruk, Lagesh, and Nainva all present similar evidence of flooding, but this evidence comes from different time periods. So despite being interesting and providing insight into the history of the area, these were probably not the biblical flood event. Adrian Mayer, a Stanford University professor of ancient history, has proposed that the theory that the global flood stories were motivated by ancient observations of seashells and fish fossils in inland and mountain areas the ancient Greeks, Egyptians, and Romans all documented the discovery of such remains in these unusual locations. The Greeks hypothesized that the Earth had been covered by water on several occasions, citing various seashells and fish fossils found on mountaintops as evidence of a flood. So, could it have really happened? There are probably as many theories as there are researchers. So, let's walk through a few of the more compelling and also the ones that are just interesting. In the past as late as the 17th century, there were several famous speculations attempting to explain the flood through natural causes. Thomas Burnett's book titled The Sacred Theory of the Earth proposed that the floodwaters arose from a hollowness within the Earth. William Winston's book titled A New Theory of the Earth suggested that the major deviations in world history, such as a flood, could be attributed to the action of comets. Growing from Winston's proposal is that a meteor or comet crashed into the Indian Ocean around 3000 BC, creating the 19-mile or 30-kilometer undersea Burkle Crater, which sits quite a distance off the east coast of Madagascar. This event is assumed to have produced a giant tsunami that flooded coastal lands. There is also speculation about another large tsunami in the Mediterranean Sea, caused by the Thera eruption around 1630 BC, as the basis for the story. But the tsunami gives little warning, certainly not enough time to build an arc. The tsunami hit the South Aegean Sea in Crete, but did not affect cities in the mainland of Greece, such as Mycenae, Athens, and Thebes, which continued to prosper, demonstrating that the large ocean wave had a local rather than a region-wide effect. Others believe that the flood story relates to the melting of the global ice caps following the last ice age. In fact, it is believed that about 12,000 years ago, the ice cap on the North Pole extended as far south as Connecticut, covering some 6 million square miles, or 15 million square kilometers, with ice. This is an area almost twice as large as the U.S., including Alaska. Of course, there was no more water on the planet at that time than there is now. So with more solid water in the form of ice there was less liquid water to fill the oceans, lakes, and rivers. All of this means that the ocean levels of the time were significantly lower than they are today. As that ice thawed, ocean and lake levels rose. And areas that were at one time on dry land were suddenly underwater. One such area where a few believed this had a dramatic impact was on the coast of the Black Sea. Explorer Robert Ballard is an adherent to this theory... You may not know the name, but he is the underwater explorer who found the remnants of the Titanic in 1985. He also discovered the German battleship Bismarck, the U.S. aircraft carrier Yorktown, and the wreck of John F. Kennedy's World War II patrol boat. Professor Ballard apparently knows his way around the bottom of the sea. So what does this have to do with the flood story? Ballard, for many years, probed the depths of the Black Sea located just north of present-day Turkey, to investigate the so-called Black Sea Deluge Hypothesis. While he made no earth-shattering findings, he did uncover many artifacts. But I'm getting ahead of myself. First, the hypothesis. According to the theory first put forward by two Columbia University scientists, there really was a great flood in the Black Sea region. They believe that the Black Sea, now a salty body, was once an isolated freshwater lake surrounded by agricultural land. In the 6th millennium BC and prior, glacial meltwater had turned the Black and Caspian Seas into vast freshwater lakes, draining into the Aegean Sea. As the glaciers melted, some of the rivers emptying into the Black Sea declined in volume and changed their courses to drain into the North Sea. The levels of the two lakes dropped through evaporation, while changes in worldwide hydrology caused overall sea levels to rise. In about 5600 BC, the rising Mediterranean finally spilled over a rocky ledge at the Bosphorus. The force of this water swept away everything in its path. The event flooded about 60,000 square miles, or 155,000 square kilometers, an area about the size of the U.S. state of Georgia. According to the scientist, about 10 cubic miles of water or 40 cubic kilometers, poured through each day. Now, it's hard for me to envision what that much water looks like, but the researchers claimed it was about 200 times the flow of Niagara Falls. That's a lot of water. The Bosphorus Flume gushed this volume for at least 300 days. Ballard's team took this theory and ran with it. 400 feet below the current surface, they unearthed an ancient shoreline proof to him that a catastrophic flood event did occur in the Black Sea. They carbon-dated shells found along the ancient shoreline and believed to have established that the event occurred about 5000 BC. Some researchers believe this was around the time when Noah's flood may have occurred. The theory also suggests that the story of this event was burned into the collective memories of the survivors, was then passed down through the years, and eventually became the biblical account of Noah. But the Black Sea was not the only body of water that is believed to have experienced flooding at the end of the last ice age. Another is the Persian Gulf. You know, the body of water between the Arabian Peninsula and the current country of Iran. The basin that now underlies the Gulf is not very deep, averaging only 164 feet or 50 meters. By way of comparison, Lake Michigan averages over 100 feet or 30 meters deeper. At the end of the last ice age, the area that is now under the water in the Gulf was an extensive region of fertile river valleys and wetlands, roughly 60,000 square miles or 155,000 square kilometers. This is just larger than the U.S. state of Michigan, both peninsulas. According to University of Birmingham archaeologist Jeffrey Rose, It served as an environmental refuge to the inhabitants of the area during periodic hyperarid climate oscillations. At some point, as the glaciers melted, the Persian Gulf filled, similar to the Bosphorus feeding the Black Sea. It would not be completely out of the question to assume that the Strait of Hormuz once flooded the Persian Gulf in a similar fashion as the glaciers melted. Next in this biblical region is the Red Sea. According to geologists, it was formed by the Arabian Peninsula being split from the Horn of Africa by movement of what is called the Red Sea Rift. As of today, the sea is still widening, many believe that eventually it will become an ocean. I'm going to take just a moment and step up on my soapbox yet again. Many in the Christian community would cast doubt on this scientific proposal and eschew it completely. My personal perspective, and it's nothing more than that, is that Christians should listen to what scientists say with curiosity. After all, who now doubts that the earth circles the sun? But any student of history knows that when first proposed... This heliocentric view was not exactly embraced by the church. When I hear something like the scientific theory that the Red Sea is widening, my religious thought on the matter is akin to the phrase, so that's how God created the Earth, and we're now just figuring out a small part of it. Stepping down from the soapbox and back to the Red Sea. In the time before written history, geologists believe that the area of the Red Sea was closed off from the oceans, and what is now covered by water was an empty, hot, dry, salt-floored desert. This would have been caused by the area being narrower than present and lower sea levels due to the dramatically larger Arctic ice caps. Similar to the other two areas previously covered, at some point, the area flooded. Finally, there are the pair of elephants in the room. Well, actually, it's only one elephant in the room, but given that the animals are going two by two, I figured a pair would work just as well. And that elephant in the room is the Mediterranean Sea. Geologists believe that the basin of this sea was once part of the larger ocean, but due to continental drift and fluctuating sea levels, it became a landlocked lake. A very large one at that. Due to the dry climate of the region, most, if not all, of the water of this lake evaporated, leaving only salt and other precipitates behind. The basin was filled in what is called the Zanclean Flood, The theory is that the water from the Atlantic Ocean refilled the formerly cut-off inland seas through the modern-day Strait of Gibraltar. This flood occurred over a period estimated to have lasted anywhere from several months to two years. The sea level rise in the basin may have reached rates at times greater than 33 feet, or 10 meters, per day. And remember that this is the vertical rise. Depending on the slope of the shoreline, this means that the shore could have been moving inland at a rate greater than what any occupant of the area could have kept up with. Based on the now undersea erosion features, researchers estimate that the water rushed down a drop, maybe a waterfall, maybe a long gorge, with a discharge about 1,000 times that of the present-day Amazon River. I think the movement of that much water is hard for us to comprehend, and it would have been massive by any standard. In my mind's eye, such an event could have been described as it was in Genesis chapter 7, verse 11, quoting, All the fountains of the great deep burst forth. Interestingly, this theorized flood would have caused sea levels in the rest of the world to drop. Now the one caveat. This proposed flooding of the Mediterranean was long before other scientists believed modern man appeared. All of these lake, gulf, and sea-filling floods could have started slowly as small as a trickle that barely anyone would notice. But as the sea level continued to rise, and the erosion of the land dam whittled away any resistance, the flow would increase. And with this would come catastrophe on a biblical scale. And such occurrences are not confined to the ancient or prehistoric world. Off the top of my head, I can think of three regions where a rise in the global sea level would cause a similar flood, though not on the scale of the Mediterranean. There is a Salton trough of California and Mexico, which lies almost entirely below sea level. Just north of there is the much more well-known Death Valley. And half a world away, on the border of Israel and Jordan, is the Dead Sea. I'm sure there are many other areas geographically similar. Of course, some would argue that the biblical flood story is a remnant of the ancient flood narrative. This, of course, is understandable as not much time passes before a huge flood occurs somewhere in the world. In fact, in the first couple years of this century, we had both the Indonesian tsunami and Hurricane Katrina. But then again, no one built a colossal boat and saved all the world's animals in either of those two disasters. To me, the most interesting thing about the intersection of the biblical flood story and the world at large is not the flooding of the Mediterranean Basin, are the other various seas and gulfs. It's that similar flood stories can be found in the traditions of indigenous peoples on every continent, well, except for Antarctica. But you'll have to wait until next week for those. So that's the episode for this week. Join me next week when I'll cover those similar flood stories from throughout the world. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at thechurchestheworld.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at com, and you can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase The Church is the World as four separate words. Thanks for listening and have a great week.